Hello and welcome to Heart and Art, the podcast that connects people through creativity. I'm your host, Danny Vanderbrook, a Hong Kong-based writer and teacher of world literature. I'm excited to be here and share the many voices of our enthusiastic and rich art scene here in Hong Kong. Each week, we deal with a philosophical question related to the arts and explore the thoughts of our guests in relation to their own craft. In this fourth episode, we're joined by a student is very much interested in political journalism and we explore the question why is storytelling a political act? Okay I'm joined here today by Maya Prakash who's a student very interested in political journalism so welcome. Thank you. It's really nice to have you on the show. It's really nice to be here. Yeah so today we're going to be thinking about story writing and why story writing is a political act. Mm -hmm. So you won a competition and you had an article in the New York Times. Oh, (laughs) I did, yes. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So um, it was an essay competition in the Asia Pacific region hosted by the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And essentially the prompt was, can people still achieve a better life through migration in 2017? Because that was when the competition was. So the competition happened about two weeks after I had participated in a model UN conference Mm. where I was representing Bangladesh on the question of illegal immigrants, whether or not we should give illegal immigrants full status. So I I had to voice a hardline position against Rohingya Muslims, um, against against illegal immigration by Rohingya Muslims into Bangladesh. Mm. And I ended up winning the Best Delegate Award on that committee. Excellent. It sounds it sounds awfully pretentious, but I did I had a moral struggle with accepting that award yeah. because I know that I got there by dehumanizing a certain portion of um, marginalized people. And in fact, the Rohingyas are called the most persecuted minority on earth. Yeah. And, um, you know, my my mother speaks Bengali and she was raised Mm -hmm. partly in Bengal. And so the ethnicity there... And my one of my best friends is Bengali, okay. so, which is what they call the Rohingyas because they're ethnically from Bengal. Which makes it even more difficult, doesn't it? Just for those of our listeners that don't know what MUN is, it's a model United Nations. So yes. you had to uh, take on a different country and the position, political position of a different country yes. and behave as a representative or diplomat from that country would in a given situation, mm-hmm. right? So that, that brings us to this conflict. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, I do feel a certain personal identification with the Rohingyas, and especially considering that now their issue has been brought onto the international stage much more, but at the time, though people knew about it, mm. it was still not a mainstream issue. The UN still hadn't dubbed it a genocide yet. Okay, yeah. So I... I did feel that like the brutality that they were being subjected to was not something that could be minimized. And, you know, like, obviously, it's a high school conference and it's serious, but not that serious. But I I didn't like the person that I became when I was defending Bangladesh's position because yeah. 
we were essentially using the same rhetoric that Boris Johnson and Trump used that mm. you know um, we can't have them here. Our country is full, and maybe Bangladesh has a better reason to think that than say the U.S. Mm. But it was still like you weren't seeing these people as human beings. You were seeing them as tax dollars that were going to be wasted. And I had a problem with that. Yeah, I mean, how fascinating this idea of trying on that particular mm-hmm. suit, so to speak, and expressing yourself purely through that kind of rhetoric, telling that kind of story. Yeah, it's yeah. a fascinating um, experience to have, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I can see how it would lead to those real moral tensions. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about the story that you that you wrote. Just a, a summary. Right. Because so, we don't want to spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so essentially, I I told my story of, uh, you know, accepting this award, but with a couple, like, with moral apprehensions about it. Yeah. And then I drew it to the broader context of the Rohingya Muslims as a case study for immigration and trying to answer the question of whether or not they can achieve a better life. Mm, mm-hmm. And the conclusion that I came to was... Of course, you know, if you're fleeing persecution, it would make sense that when you flee, you would achieve a better life because anything would be better than being brutalized by the Tatmadaw. Mm, of course. But I did, I remember one of the, the nicest things that I think I wrote in that article was using the Atticus Finch quote. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you'll never know a person's point of view until you step into their shoes and walk around in them. Yeah. And that was kind of the message of my article. Yeah. 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 And it's that it comes back to this idea of empathy, Mm -hmm. which we, you know, we discussed in an earlier episode and this ability to learn empathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's fascinating. So you um, had that success, which I, I assume kind of spurred you on. And then you had to create this project as part of the curriculum called Shakti Stories, right? Mm -hmm. This was what you chose to do. So, yeah, tell us a little bit more about the inspiration for what you did there and and what this project looks like. Because I've seen the website. It's really fascinating. Thank you. Um, Well, as someone growing up in an international school and someone who considers themselves decidedly feminist, Mm. I always wanted to reconnect with my cultural heritage through the lens of feminism and through the lens of possibly trying to work for the greater good. Yeah. And so I decided to create this project because I found it so interesting, the stories that women would tell me. Like, my own grandmother was a civil servant, and she was one of the only female civil servants in her time. It's quite a position. Yeah, and this was, like, in the 50s, right? So it was almost unheard of. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So I always found it fascinating the kinds of stories that would come out of these women once you'd sit down and ask them. And it... It was a little bit selfish in the sense that I wanted to hear these stories for my own personal satisfaction. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought they have so many deep insights into the way that Indian culture specifically plays out in terms of gender issues. Mm. And Mm. of course, you know, people have this stereotype or this preconceived notion that India is very regressive for women. And I I would agree in some aspects. Sure. Yeah. But uh, there was a Thomson Reuters report that 
ranked India as the number one most unsafe country in the world. Wow. But the all these activists that were talking to me, they were saying that that is not true at all. They actually have no statistical basis to make that claim because the rape per capita in India mm. is not that high. And of course, that's due to a bit of underreporting. So it's one per 10,000. Yeah, yeah. But, or one per 100,000, I can't remember. But in Sweden, it's 68 per Mm. Um, for that figure. So the disparity that you have between Sweden and India is quite like, even if you factor in underreporting, yeah. it wouldn't make sense that India is the number one most unsafe country for women in the world. Like yeah. DR Congo, Sierra Leone, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't they rank above? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking today about this TED talk from 2009, but it's it's hung around for a long time because it's so powerful. Uh, it's by a Nigerian lady called uh, Chimamanda Adichie. It's called The Danger of a Single Story. And she talks about this idea of representation and the, sh her feeling about Nigeria or about the continent of Africa is that it has been so misrepresented mm -hmm. such that One of her flatmates actually assumed she wouldn't know how to use a cooker. This cultural reductivism that happens yes. as a result of media reporting yeah. in, you know, in one particular way. Yeah, and that was kind of what I was trying to combat, that, you know, obviously I don't think that my one website is going to combat all of the misrepresentation that has happened of Indian feminism, but... Yes. The movement is burgeoning and it's so diverse and it's so interesting and multifaceted. I just thought that why not hear these stories from the women who are actually on the ground, who mm. can tell me. So I'll give you an example, right? Fascinating. Yeah, please do. Because um, you actually got to interview these women who are activists. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, I interviewed a female cop. She was uh, one of the first, actually, she was the first Indian police officer, female police officer in her state. And wow. she, her name is Mira Borwanka. Okay. And she was telling me about her career in the police force and how she, obviously she faced discrimination, but in different ways than you would think. Mm. In the sense that she said that once she had ascended to a certain level, her officers started calling her sir, because that was the default for the, a person in power. And she said that After a while, gender stopped playing a role, but when I was starting out, it absolutely did. But she also said that her gender helped her tackle issues, and she was talking about, like, child sex trafficking. Yeah. And she was saying that as, as a woman police officer, sometimes the girls would open up to her much more than they would to the male officers, and she would be able to counsel them because half the time they thought that they were in like a genuine employment scheme and that the pimps were their friends. Wow, yeah, because yeah. of the, you know, the manipulation and yeah, yeah. form of brainwashing, really. Yeah, absolutely, and gaslighting. And these mm. these are like 12, 13, 14-year-old girls. So vulnerable. Yeah. It's interesting, though, you said as she progressed higher at the scale, people started to call her sir, almost like she has to become this masculine symbol in yeah. order to be respected As a, as a kind of authoritarian figure. So what I find actually quite interesting is that all of the women that I interviewed, because 
Hinduism is one of the few religions that worships both male and female goddesses almost in the same capacity. Mm, that yeah. femininity in and of itself is not considered as weak as it is, as I see in like America and the West. Or European, yeah, yeah. European cultures. Yeah, and I, I hate to generalize about the West because that is quite a diverse culture. But, of course, um, they don't. They've never felt the need to cover up their own femininity. And in fact, Dr. Ranjana Kumari, who's on the board of Facebook International. Yes. Um, she she wears saris and she wears like bindis, which are an Indian religious symbol for women. Yeah. And she's never felt the need to dress like men or act like men. She uses her femininity to her advantage, to her leadership. Yeah. And I mean, I hope that as we see more female leaders as they become more prominent, other young women will see themselves reflected in that. Yeah, yeah. So I have to ask this, what inspired your interest in politics? Because you're so knowledgeable and so passionate about it. How, how did that happen? <laughs> um, you know, both my parents, they instilled a love for politics in me because we would, every dinner party, that we would just talk about politics and they would kind of force me to sit there and listen. (laughs) And then after a while, I thought, you know something, maybe there's something to this. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe this is why they're talking about it all the time. (laughs) But my love actually started when I joined Model United Nations Mm. in the seventh grade. Yeah. Because, you know, as we were discussing before, it's a way of interacting firsthand with all of these issues, like not just women's issues, but, you know, vaccines and the Syrian conflict and the Yemeni conflict and trying to negotiate that and I just thought that that was so important and so valuable yeah so central to everything really Mm -hmm. and it's fascinating you know for me it's your website uh, and the stories it's all about being the change you want to see exactly right so it's a good place to start (laughs) (laughs) to understand the world and people around us Mm -hmm. what about your impression of of your generation in general are young people interested in politics i think that they absolutely are and given the rise of social media Mm. um you have much more active involvement in everyday issues and you've given a forum for the court of public opinion Mm. to judge various actions now of course that comes with both positives and negatives but i think that There are certain people, of course, that are not interested in politics at all. Mm. And it's it's quite a dirty game, I will say, everywhere. Um, Which you learn in MUN. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But, like, I noticed that among my friends who live in India, politics is an old man's game there. No yeah. one no one cares because nobody thinks that the party in power is going to really change anything. Which causes but, apathy. Oh, yeah. But they. I think that young people are much more interested in social issues yeah. than they are in politics itself. Um, and I, I've noticed that while my friends in India, they don't necessarily care about the elections, they definitely care about the social movements that are being sparked. And I okay. noticed this all across Hong Kong, US, in the U.S. as well. It's less about 
the the political aspect of it as in like the logistical aspect and who's in power and who's in congress kind of thing yeah it's more of like how can we change people's minds yeah yeah and you know that's a, a really positive thing to hear given yeah. you know you will be the leaders of the future yeah with yeah. any luck <laughs> <laughs> so we'll come back to the question for this episode then story writing and mm-hmm. you know this is a, a little departure from art in that it, we're talking about journalism but yeah. the art of writing and telling a story is undoubtedly a political act. Well, from my opinion, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what do you think? I think that especially... So one of my favorite philosophers, Simone de Beauvoir, it's unsurprising, of course. Mm, um, yep. <laughs> so she talks about the subject-object dichotomy, right? Yeah. In that subjects are essentially actors and objects are those that are acted upon. Yeah. Right? And... Throughout history, marginalized groups have been objectified in that they have not been regarded as full subjects who have unique perspectives that need to be taken into account when making mm. decisions. Yeah. So when you tell someone's story who has been objectified in some way, or even if you tell your own story, you're reclaiming your subjectivity. You're reclaiming your individuality. You're stating that... I have a perspective that is important and I am a human being and you need to listen to me kind Mm. of thing. And I think that because politics by definition is about power, I just think that subjects have power. So reclaiming your subjectivity through telling a story is reclaiming your power, which is in essence a political act. Yeah, for sure. In the way that Nadici talks about this idea of cultural reductivism or the lack of representation, just giving someone a voice or giving them a platform in which they can share their story becomes mm-hmm. so important. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think that these first-hand accounts, because they're also experts in their field. So when you have an expert who's giving you reliable information as well as their own personal accounts of women that they've encountered Mm. or encounters that they've had, it makes for a very powerful balance. Yeah, sure. Do you think then in this current climate that some stories deserve to be told more than others? It's quite a loaded Uh, question, of course. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I think that... The question is not really one of deserving because that would make a moral judgment on the kinds of stories that should be told. You're making edicts about who can say what, and that's not the essence of storytelling. But I will say that some stories need to be heard more than others rather than some stories need to be told more than others. And I mean that in the sense that You know, there's this big fight for representation of minorities and women in the media. Yeah. And that is not because white men's stories don't deserve to be told, but because the stories of women and racial minorities need to be heard for the inspiration of young people and just to see yourself on screen. 
Mm. Right. So you have a model for what your life may look like. So, in fact, that was part of the reason why I was doing this. One of the things that I learned when I was doing Shakti stories was like I found role models for what I would like my life to look like. That's a wonderful thing. Um, And what is that? What is it? (laughs) What is it about them that inspired you so much or the aspects that Mm -hmm. inspired you? I mean, one, that they're doing such impactful work and that, you, you know, they see the fruits of their, like, their activism every day. Yeah. And that they, they're they just relentless. They don't give up. They have very strong ideals that they're committed to. Yeah. And that they're also successful in, in the sense, like, what we would consider traditionally successful, that they have very much achieved what they would have liked to happen. Yeah. In the sense, yeah. like... Achievable targets. That they... Exactly. So, like, um, Ranjana Kumari, like yes. I said, on the board of Facebook, also on the board of Twitter, but she has her own, like, academic center for social research. Yeah. And um, there's a grassroots activist who I interviewed, um, Yogita Bhayana. She was a flight attendant who at Kingfisher but when it shut down she ended up uh, joining and starting her own foundation for child rape victims wow and I just think that the fact that they are willing to pursue the causes that they believe in and it has played out in a way that is practical is very inspiring to me yeah definitely and I think that's probably a good place for us to end on that beautifully inspiring note I just want to mention to the audience, how old are you? Fifteen. Fifteen years old. Fifteen years old. And this is the level of discourse. It's really interesting. Like, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Thank you. So, you know, you've already had an article published in the New York Times. I hope that you're going to extend this website because it's really interesting. And Mm -hmm. I recommend everyone have a look at it. Mm -hmm. So where where do you hope to take your writing in the future? You know, that's a good question. People (laughs) keep asking me that. Uh, I honestly, I would like to extend my writing into possibly whatever work that I would choose to do in the sense that gosh you can cut some of the stuttering (laughs) I'm not really sure how to answer this question Um, so I would like my writing to extend possibly to publications I'm not sure I'd want to be a full-time journalist but then Mm. again I'm not sure what possibilities would await me by the time I'm 25. I don't even know what the world is going to look like by the time I'm 25. Exactly. But I just hope that through my writing, I can inspire other people and tell their their stories and my stories and hopefully have an impact. Definitely. So it was really nice to talk to you today. You too. Thank you for coming on the show. No, thank you so much for having me. Politics is a very relevant subject here in Hong Kong tonight as hundreds of thousands of of protesters gather outside the government buildings to protest against the extradition law, which would allow police to extradite Hong Kongers or expatriates to mainland China to be tried in the event that they are deemed to have committed a crime. Over 70 separate NGOs have written to Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, warning that this law will be a breach of human rights if it is to be passed. So, dark times here in Hong Kong tonight. 
there's a big storm outside, but it just tells us how important it is to have a voice.